And in that region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Ludwig von Beethoven was one of the most influential and and successful composers of classical music in history. The amount of music he composed, the things that he did, they were amazing. But in spite of all of his talent and all of his success, Beethoven's personal life at times was very difficult. He was born in Bonn, Germany. He was one of seven children but only three actually made it to adulthood. He was the oldest. When he was about 20 years old, he decided to go to Vienna, Austria. He wanted to go and to study with Haydn, with Mozart, but he just had gotten there when his mother died. And so he had to come back home to Bonn. You see, his father was an alcoholic. And he really was unable to cope with things after the death of his wife. And so taking care of his younger brothers really fell on his shoulders. And so Beethoven had to come back home. He was there for several years until finally he was able to feel like things were taken care of. And then he went back to Vienna. Back in Vienna, he began to compose and make beautiful music. He met a young woman, fell in love. They got engaged. But her father wasn't too excited about his daughter marrying this unproven composer and so he managed to break them up and in the end she would marry a count and he would have a broken heart. He was in his late 20s when he began to notice that his hearing wasn't right. Beethoven, the great composer, was going deaf. By the time he was in his late 40s, he would be completely deaf. He had written eight symphonies, but now that he had lost his hearing, he decided to write one more, his ninth symphony. He set to work on it. It would take him years. It would finally be performed for the first time in 1824. And when he went and performed this ninth symphony and he got through, the people went wild. They knew 
he couldn't hear them clapping. And so the people all out in the audience were waving their handkerchiefs and waving their hats. But Beethoven was focused on the orchestra, totally oblivious to what was going on behind him. He did something unusual, though, in that symphony. He put in a part for the chorus. You didn't put in choruses, choirs in a symphony. And he also had soloists. Well, they were the ones who were standing there, the soloists, who grabbed Beethoven and turned him around to look at the audience. And he saw them waving their handkerchiefs and waving their hats. It was an incredible success for the night. Beethoven would only live another three years. He would die at 56 years old. A man who was amazing, though, in what he did. When he did his special there for the Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, he came to the fourth movement and he did add this chorus part, these singers. And what they did was they were singing a poem by Friedrich Schiller. And the poem was known as Ode to Joy. It was all about life and freedom and love and our Father above and how it draws us together. It was such an affirmation of life and love and and our Father the Creator. All of that from a man whose life had not worked out the way that he planned. It was 75 years later, Henry Van Dyke was a Presbyterian minister. And he was so moved by the, the tune that Beethoven had written that he wanted to bring words to it, make a hymn out of it. He was actually up at Williams College in Massachusetts where he had been teaching. And one day he sat down and the words just seemed to come. And he wrote the words to go to the tune. And it was joyful, joyful, we adore thee. God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness. Fill us with the light of day. The song, Joyful, Joyful, is probably one of my top five favorite hymns ever because of such an affirmation of faith, an affirmation of life, and the goodness of God's grace. Special thing. And I always like to go back and think, that tune, that affirmation, that ode to joy was written by a man who had had his heart broken. He never got married. He lost his hearing while he was young, and he's a composer. And yet he is able to look at life and affirm life. He's able to say, it's a wonderful life. This morning, I want to continue with the sermon series, It's a Wonderful Life. Because what we've been saying is through this Advent season, for these four weeks, we've been talking about how do we confront the pain and the difficulty in our lives? How do we confront our fears? How can we be the people of hope? It's not about saying that what happens doesn't matter or that everything that happens is good and just, just makes us all. No, no, no. But it is saying we have the strength, the courage to deal with whatever happens in life and life doesn't work out the way we plan and still be able to see the goodness of life and know what it means to love and to be able to say it's a wonderful life. 
we have been moving through the scripture, the story of, of Jesus' birth. And this morning, I particularly like this scene. To me, it's one of the favorite scenes. For you have the shepherds out in the field, watching over their flock by night, when an angel of the Lord appears and says, Do not be afraid. And we got the fear again. Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which will come to all the people. For born to you this day in the city of David is a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The shepherds, as I went back and I started trying to look at this, I'm trying to think, what does the Scripture say to me this year? As I read the story, what I kept thinking about was, these shepherds were together. Out in the fields together at night, they heard the message. Together, they would journey to Bethlehem. Together, they would gather round the manger with Mary and Joseph, a peasant couple, with wise men, kings from afar, the rich, the Gentiles. This is a story that tells us how God's love, the expression of God's love in the form of a baby, draws us together. And there is no doubt that when you and I are together, we are able to confront fear to deal with the pain of life in a whole different way than we do on our own. We live in a culture that celebrates individualism. We feel like we've got to do it on our own. We can't ask for help. How many times within families, when there are fear and there are struggles, we withdraw from our family. We withdraw from our friends. And yet it's a time when you're supposed to come together. Because it's when you come together in the light of God's love, you find the strength to confront your fears. To be able to say it really is a wonderful life. When you go back and watch the movie, you know, I've been trying to find scenes each week that spoke to me. And one of those powerful scenes, if you know it's a wonderful life, is when there's a run on the bank. Jimmy Stewart is playing George Bailey. Donna Reed plays Mary, his wife. They are just getting married. And here you've had George Bailey wanting to travel to Europe, travel around the world. Never been able to happen. Finally, he's getting married. They're leaving on their honeymoon. And historically we know that it's the day that the stock market crashes. There's a run on the banks. It's back in a day when you didn't have the FDIC. People didn't have their, their deposits guaranteed in the bank. No, if, if everybody suddenly was afraid they couldn't get their money and ran to a bank and asked for their cash, the banks collapsed and you lost your money. Well, they're in the car ready to go when people start storming the banks and into his building and loan. Mr. Potter, you remember, is the rich guy in town who only cares about money, wants to own everything. And George is the one who's trying to help people have a house, a decent living. Well, the people run into his building and loan. He now gets out of the car and runs back there. And he gets in and they're all saying, we want our money. And he said, you're thinking about this all wrong. I I, I don't have your money in a vault. 
You, you put your money here and we lent it to, to George so that George could, could build a house. You used to live in a house that Potter rented to you. Do you remember what that was like? Now you got your own home. No, we took the money and we, we gave it to the Kennedy family. and They could have their own home. And I mean, Ed, don't you remember last year you couldn't make a payment? You didn't lose your house. We helped you. Do you think Potter would have done that? All these people are in panic and so afraid. And George confronts them and says, look, we can get through this. If we stick together. Sometimes we forget. No matter what the problem. No matter what you fear. You can get through this. If we stick together. It is a baby born in Bethlehem that calls us together. We find our hope in Christ and in sharing with each other. You and I can confront the challenges of life and we can still say, it's a wonderful life. It's what I want us to think about this morning. And there's really just two things that I want you to be able to go away and think about. First of all, it was the shepherds who said, Let us go to Bethlehem and see. Let us see this thing that has happened, that has been made known to us. Let us go to Bethlehem and see. The shepherds were intentional about looking for God's love. To reach out into the world to see a baby, a mother and father, people who had needs. Let us go to Bethlehem and see. Let's go look. Just a couple weeks ago, I was doing a funeral. A funeral for a young man named Christopher Hampton. He was Mike and Debbie Hampton's son. They are members of the St. Luke's family of faith. Many of you know them. Many were here at the service. Christopher was in his 20s. A wonderful young man living down in Houston. Passed away. It turned out that we got together as a family so that we could kind of just talk and reminisce and share stories. Christopher had always been a a sweet soul. They told about how when the kids were growing up, you know, they they liked to take vacations and travel. And one of the things they found was the kids were always asking for more money to buy this souvenir or do this. And so as a family, what they'd established was when we go on a vacation, we're going to give you money right up front and you can spend it on whatever you want, whenever you want. But when it's gone, it's gone. And they said, you know, we used to go down to some resorts in Mexico. We'd give them their money. And when we got there, Christopher would see a man on the corner begging. And he would go over and give his money away. And be so happy about it. It's what he wanted to do and it made him feel so good. He just had a compassionate spirit. And maybe he did because Mike and Debbie had helped to create that kind of a spirit. They had a tradition that every year at Thanksgiving, everybody got a $50 gift card. Everybody in the family got a $50 gift card. And then your responsibility between now and Christmas was to find somebody who needed it, somebody you wanted to bless. And you had to give that gift card away before Christmas 
And then at Christmas dinner, they would sit around the table and talk about who did you give the card to and why were you passionate about it? Well, they told me about that. I shared the story and I've had so many people come back and say, we're doing that in our family now. So much so, I had a friend, John Williams, a member of this church. He came to me and, and put down some money and said, I want us to do that. And I said, well, if you're putting that down, I want to add to it and let's get it up to 100 bucks each. And uh, each of us has to go find someone to give it to. And then we'll get back together after Christmas. We'll have lunch and let's talk about who we gave it to and why we gave it. And I have to tell you, I still have my hundred. No, but I tell you, something's happened. I tell you this because I consider myself a pretty nice guy. I feel like I'm fairly sensitive to people's needs. I try to listen. I try to see. But since John and I did this, I have found myself looking far more closely at the needs of other people. I am listening far more. And I have shocked myself. I have been surprised at how much more I'm seeing and hearing about the needs of other people. And it simply made me wonder, how are we doing as a family of faith? We think sometimes we're really being kind and listening and looking. But are we really? I found I wasn't looking deep enough. I wasn't listening near as well as I could. Are you looking? Are you listening? I came across a story about a man named Dennis Estimon. Dennis just graduated from Boca Raton High School down in Florida. It turned out that He's an interesting young man because he was an immigrant from Haiti. He and his family moved here when he was in the first grade, moved to Boca Raton. And he talks about how when he went to school as a first grader, it was a challenge because he didn't understand English really well. He'd go to class, but the hard part was lunch. Because whenever you went to lunch, everybody breaks into their groups and he always was alone. Well, the years went by. He really improved with his English. He was very smart. He was an athletic kid, joined the football team. He became Mr. Popular. He was a part of the in crowd. But he never forgot how it felt in first grade to sit alone for lunch. And so what he did was he decided last year to create a club called We Dine Together. And he recruited friends and other people he didn't know, but got people to come together. And what they did was, every day when the bell rang for lunch, he said 3,400 kids entered into the courtyard there at the school. And they all would break into their groups, and then some kids would be alone. And so they would then split up and go look for all the kids who were alone, and there they would talk to them. There they would have lunch with them. There would he introduce them to other kids. And it changed the spirit of their school. We dine together. Well, when he graduated in June, he decided to put off going to college for a year. And instead, he's traveling all around the country. 
Fifteen of the schools have already signed up to have a club called We Dine Together, and 100 more schools have expressed interest in 2018. He wants to carry the message. If we are together, it changes the way you look at your life. We see the struggles that so many kids have in school. But I want to say they're not different from the struggles we have as adults. Nobody wants to be alone, to be overwhelmed with a sense of fear and struggles. When we come together, founded in our faith, you're able to say, it's a wonderful life. Are you looking? Are you listening around you? Secondly, the angel said to the shepherds, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which will come to all. Stop right there and hear the word. Good news of a great joy for all. It was for the shepherds. They were the poor. They were the powerless. They weren't the in crowd or respected. For all. A peasant couple a new father, a new mother, for all, for Gentiles, wise men, kings, the powerful, the wealthy. It's for all. And that means you, me, for all. Christmas is about us experiencing again the fact that God does love us enough to come. And when you feel loved by God, it will change the way you reach out and touch the lives of others. You will see, you will hear, and you do something. You treat people differently. You know, as I started working on this sermon series, I started watching the movie and doing research about all the different characters. One of the people I did some work on was Donna Reed. I told you how Donna Reed played the part of Mary, the wife of, uh, of George Bailey. Well, I, I learned that Donna Reed was born in Iowa, born on a farm, raised on the farm, and she was raised as a good Methodist. When I found that, I knew I had a story. <laughs> raised as a good Methodist, grew up as a lady of faith. When she graduated high school, she wanted to go to college didn't have the money. It was an aunt who was living out in California that suggested she come live with her and the aunt said, I'll help you go to a community college. So that's what happened. And while she was out in California, she started getting involved in local theater and that led to people saying, you need to get a screen test and she did. And suddenly in the 1940s, she started getting small parts in movies. And that led in 1946 for her to be cast opposite of Jimmy Stewart, and it's a wonderful life. It was a real breakout role. She then got bigger and bigger roles, and she would perform in From Here to Eternity, and she would win an Academy Award, win the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for her role that year. Now, the thing that everybody said about Donna Reed was she was such a kind lady. She was just a kind person, a real 
person who just seemed to love other people, was elegant. She really cared. Well, in the 1950s and then the 1960s, Hollywood started to change. I've been telling you about Frank Capra and how Frank Capra was so popular and did such great work in the 30s and 40s. He fell out of favor in Hollywood in the 50s and 60s. The reason is because Frank Capra said, you know, every movie I make should let every person know that God loves them and the only way that we will ever have peace is if we learn to love one another. He felt every movie should have a value, a moral. It should lift people up and encourage them. Well, in the 50s and 60s, Hollywood began to say, we don't feel like movies should have to do that. Television was coming into being. We don't have to do that. And Frank Capra, so he was pushed out because he had this sense that you have to have a reason, a moral for doing a movie. And Frank Capra said, all you care about now is shock, 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 vile language, violence, sex. What happened to having a meaning in our movies? Hollywood began to drift. And then television came along. And even more so. And you know, they still make great movies now and then. They still have good TV shows now and then. But you know, when I flip on a television, it's amazing. I start to feel like here in America we are obsessed with murder and rape. That we are obsessed with who can throw out the best zingers and who can put other people down and make it look funny. I mean, it's interesting to see where we've gone. And and after 50 years of this, I think it's had an impact on our culture, the way we see each other, the way we speak to each other and treat each other. Well, in the 50s and 60s, you begin to see this divide taking place. There were still shows in the 50s and 60s that you might remember, rather wholesome, like The Andy Griffith Show, Leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best, The Donna Reed Show. Donna Reed got her a show, a sitcom in 1958. It ran for eight years until 1966. And every week for 22 minutes, what they dealt with was a problem that families would have. And the message was, if we stick together, we can deal with this problem. Every week, how do you deal with it? If we stick together as a family, we can figure this out. It had a great run. She was nominated for a number of Emmys. And when she finally got through with that, she basically retired a whole lot from Hollywood. Her husband, Grover, got a job with Williams Company. And Donna Reed and Grover actually moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that's where they lived. They actually moved in next door to the parents of a lady named Megan Han. Megan Han and her husband, Pete, are members of this family of faith. And... They got to know Donna Reed and her husband Grover, so much so that when Megan and Pete got married, Donna Reed threw a wedding shower for them. And Megan said, she really is a lady of kindness, thoughtfulness, just such a wonderful spirit. It was Donna Reed who was fond of saying, when you deal with yourself, use your head. When you deal with other people, Use your heart. When you deal with yourself, think. When you're dealing with other people, 
Can you show compassion, kindness? Do you look deeper and see? Mary Smith was a first grade teacher. She loved teaching, but she really believed as a teacher it was her job to help instill values in her children. And one of the values she wanted to instill was gratitude. So every year, whenever the kids went away for Thanksgiving and they came back, she would ask kids, would you draw a picture of something you're grateful for? And then she would have them show them to the class. Well, one year, the kids came back. She asked them to draw a picture. What are you grateful for? And they drew a picture. Will anybody share it? A little boy stood up, a turkey. You know, of course, you just had Thanksgiving. I'm grateful for a turkey. And then another little boy, what are you thankful for? A drum leg off a turkey. And then a little girl stood up, piece of pie, pumpkin pie. You know, these are first graders. It's easy to see where their mind was. And so another little boy stood up, it's a dog. I'm grateful for my dog. And then this little boy, Douglas, stood up and he held up his picture. And it was the picture of a hand. And all the kids just laughed and said, a hand? Douglas, you never get it right what we're supposed to be doing. And they started laughing at him and Ms. Smith said, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm sure that there's a reason he drew that hand. Let's all see if we can guess. Why do you think Douglas is thankful for a hand? And the little boy held up his hand and he said, I bet it's God's hand. Nope. Another kid, I bet it's the farmer's hand, the one who made the food we enjoyed on Thanksgiving. You can see where first graders' mind do run. No, no, no. Several other kids raised their hands. They couldn't figure it out. And finally they got restless and they started kind of jeering. And, and Mary said she could tell. She got to bring a halt to this to protect him. And said, okay, okay, it's good. It's, it's recess time. Let's go out to the playground. And she went out and as soon as she got there, she went to Douglas and said, so whose hand is it? And he said, it's your hand. And she stood there and thought for a moment. How many times did they come to the playground? And Douglas was so small. When all the kids chose up sides to play kickball, they never chose him. He always stood there beside Mary, holding her hand. When they got into a circle to play their games, Douglas was always left out. She was thinking about this when she looked down and instinctively, she was holding his hand. Nobody wants to be alone. Christmas, it's when God reached out to hold your hand. So you're not alone. And when you and I celebrate the expression of God's love, then we become that instrument that reaches out to hold somebody's hand together. It is the birth of a baby in Bethlehem that draws us all together. And when we are together, grounded in our love of Christ, I'm telling you, you find the strength to face your fears and the struggles of life. You're able to affirm it really is a wonderful life. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.